Welcome to Product Leaders Podcast, a podcast by FireArt. We are the defenders of usability, champions of product consistency, and the emissaries of enjoyable human technology interactions. Don't play the game, listen to the podcast, where we share conversations in product leadership to help empower you to produce great digital products for your customers. Hey everyone, today we are having a special guest with a special topic, Andrea Ho, Senior Growth Product Manager at Atlassian. Interesting facts that Andrea started her career in the design fashion industry before becoming a tech product manager. And also interesting thing is she was a featured speaker at product school, quite a well-known school for product managers. Hi Andrea, and thank you very much for joining our podcast. Hi, Talek. Thank you so much for welcoming me onto the podcast. It's an honor to be here with you speaking today. It's an honor for us. Before jumping to the topic, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey, how you get from the fashion industry to the product management position. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a senior product manager at Atlassian. I've been here for about three and a half years now, and I've worked in a couple of other companies doing product management as well before I got here. But yeah, like you said, I started out from a a very non-traditional background. I came from fashion design, but I'd always had a passion for tech. And back then I didn't know there was such a thing as a product manager. I'd never heard of this job title before, but when I made the move across to a tech startup through a friend of a friend, I was doing tech support because I had no technical background and I was really enjoying just speaking to customers every day. I I found it really satisfying getting to get on the phone with customers, understand their problems, learn about them and how they were using the products and the challenges they were having. And then working with a development team to, you know, get some fixes out and things like that. And but actually after a couple of years of doing that, I started to feel this desire to do more than just that. I didn't want to just put out fires all day long and help people find workarounds for, you know, broken customer experiences. I wanted to build better products. And that's when I started looking out there a bit more and I heard about this role of a product manager and I was like, what is that? And the more I learned about what they did, you know, speaking to customers, but it didn't end there, you know, actually working to build and design better solutions, test them, launch them out to market. That was when I just knew straight away, I'm like, that's what I want to do. It's uh, giving me the power to actually make a difference and not just put out fires all day long. So that was sort of the beginning of my journey towards becoming a product manager. It still took a while to actually land my first product role, but it sort of gave me the motivation to learn all about this role of product management, spoke to a lot of product people in the industry to understand, you know, what does it take to be a product leader? What does it take to become a product manager and what do they do in their day to day? And, you know, how do I land my first job? And Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to get a break. Someone took a chance on me. Awesome. And maybe you can share like some kind of roadmap because if a product designer or I don't know, a developer moving to product management is kind of a roadmap on how to get there, it's uh, pretty easy to come up with, right? But uh, you actually, like your career in fashion industry, and how your early days looks like. Maybe you took some bootcamp courses or how you get enough information to land your first job as a product manager. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear you use that term roadmap of how to get to the product role because it's actually one of the things that I tell young aspiring product managers or people early in their product career is the best way to build up those skills is to think of yourself as a product. You know, product manage yourself. You are a product. What are your goals? What are the milestones that you can see potentially in in front of you? And what is that potential path or roadmap to get there? And along the way, you'll learn different things and you might need to pivot because you realized, oh, actually, I need to focus on something different, learn a different skill. Or maybe you'll figure out other ways that are working really well for you that you'll double down on. And so it really is like a, a product roadmap of yourself. For me, it was having a mentor definitely helped a lot. Someone who had gone a similar path. I wasn't lucky enough to find someone who'd gone from fashion to product, but you know, I found someone who moved into product from a, a different technical role. And actually they were working at Atlassian, which I very much looked up to and aspired to, you know, working for a company like that. And yeah, they gave me a lot of really good advice. You know, one of the first things they said to me was get involved in the community. There are so many product managers out there. Go to product meetups, meet as many people as you can. There are product management conferences happening all around the world. If there's one that happens to be in a city near you, you know, try and volunteer even help out there and and get to know more people and give back to the community. Because the more you put in, the more you give, the more you'll receive as well. And so that was really crucial to me. I think going to the meetups, I heard a lot of firsthand stories about challenges that people were having in different businesses, all different types of industries. And I got to speak to a lot of different product managers as well. And it was tough to start with. Like networking is tough, especially if you're an introvert, like I am uh, going up and introducing yourself. And especially at the time I wasn't yet a product manager. I'm like, oh, no one's going to want to talk to me. Like I'm not even a product manager yet, but I think product managers are generally, you know, kind people and they're, they're willing to to talk to people and, and share their knowledge. So I definitely learned a lot from that. It's awesome. I mean, thanks for sharing. I totally feel you because I was on a web summit a few months ago and I'm also running a startup. I need somehow to promote startups. Also, I talked with a lot of product leaders and the rules that you mentioned sounds really simple, but in action, once you need to start to doing that, it's so hard. My voice is shaking. I can't build one sentence to talk with the people. But once you get to this flow, it's, it becomes like easier easier. But one important thing that I come up personally with is that after attending such conferences, after talks with different product leaders or founders, it's really inspiring and motivating to do things, to create things, or in general, to work for yourself more. I mean, improving yourself as a product. And it's really inspiring, but quite hard to start. I was just thinking actually, like what you were saying about, it gives you that motivation to start learning and doing things. And like how you were saying, you're building your startup. I think it was the same thing with me. Like all the things that I learned from these meetups and conferences and talking to people, even though I didn't have the title of product manager yet, I took them back and I started trying to put them into practice in my current role. Like how can I just practice some of those things? And that's also another way to help build up your resume. Like even if you don't have the title yet, I think the important thing is if you can demonstrate that you understand what the responsibilities are and that you're actively 
using them and doing them in your day-to-day role, even if you don't have the job title. I think that's what people are looking for. Uh, they, you know, they experience, I think, is so much more impactful and important than having done a course. Cool. I also saw in your LinkedIn that you also work with uh, ML teams with a lot of engineers. And I'm curious, how tech-savvy product managers should be to <laughs> collaborate with engineers? Because I think like in every product management podcast, someone is raising such questions. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. And one that I get asked a lot because clearly like I don't have any kind of technical background. I never studied any courses on how to program or anything like that. But I think the main thing is that you know how to communicate. You know how to speak the language that the engineers speak. You don't have to understand how to do what they do. You just need to know what they're doing and have a curiosity about it. And if you have that curiosity to learn and understand why they're doing the things they're doing, not necessarily what they're doing, I think that's most of the time that's enough to get you through it. You know, like I I learned a lot of it on the job. A lot of people are curious about my like machine learning experience with that team. And truth be told, when I landed that job, I'd never worked with machine learning teams before. I had done some little hackathons with my teams in my previous company where we played around a little bit with the Google API, but we hadn't actually built full models. And so most of it was learning on the job. But in terms of technical skills, I'm very curious about data. My analysts describe me as data curious. I'm no expert at SQL or anything like that, but I think having the interest in it kind of drives you to ask more questions and learn more. And I think really that's the key. You definitely don't need to learn how to code in order to be a product manager. Mm -hmm. But still, fix me if I'm wrong, but as a product manager, if you're kind of familiar with SQL or you're working with data, you still need to have some kind of mathematics. I don't mean that you need to have mathematical background, but still you need to know some basic of statistics, right? I guess so. I mean, I've picked up bits and pieces along the way, especially like as a growth product manager now, everything I do is an experiment and we check for that they're like full on statistical significant AB tests. But I, I don't know, maybe it's me personally, I like to learn by doing. And so I find it much more educational going through and running an experiment with a team and how they do it. I guess I was fortunate enough to join a team that was already mature and knew how to do these things. So they taught me a lot of things. But honestly, I found that with every team I've joined, I learned so much from the people around me. Like they, every team has a different set of skills, different strengths. So as a product manager, you learn all these strengths from the people around you. So I think I'd say there's also different skills required for different roles. Like, yes, my current role did mean that I needed to understand how statistics work. And that kind of drove me to just go off and do a little bit of my own research to understand that. But it depends how deep you want to go. I think as a product manager these days, we tend to be, you probably heard the term like jack of all trades, master of none. You have to go broad because you don't really have the capacity to go super deep into anything. And so I try and learn just enough across each area to be across everything because you simply can't know everything. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's I agree. I was a product designer before getting to this management role. For first years, I thought like I need to go really deep into UX, UI subjects. 
But once after years, I just came up that the main thing, what I want to do, like to build product itself, and it doesn't matter with what kind of tools you use to build that. The main thing, the outcome of your work. And once I get to this road, I also started to learn a lot of things in different areas. But if I need to talk too technically, or I need to go too deep in one of the subjects, I won't be able to do that because I just only understand high level part. And sometimes when I'm talking with a real specialist, when I need something and discussing, I always feel that insecure in my knowledge because I learned a lot of things in different areas, but nothing deep. So that's why sometimes I feel insecure. Every product manager does. Everyone that I've spoken to feels the same way, but I think You know, that's one of the great things about Atlassian, one of the key values that we have. It's around collaboration. We're very much against the lone wolf, you know, champion kind of person. It's There's no I in team kind of mentality. We have different people in a kind of multidisciplinary cross-functional group. Everyone has different skills and you rely on each other. You know, I don't need to be extremely technical because I have a whole team of developers and an engineering manager to do that. And... I give them opportunities to step up and answer those questions, you know, and I've got a designer who is an expert at all things customer experience. And I've got an analyst who is an expert at statistics and machine learning. And I am a generalist across all of them. I know a little bit about everything, enough to tie them all together. But yeah, we're a team. Great that you mentioned the parts where in general, all the product managers feels like the same way. In general, I would say in IT sphere, when I'm talking with people, like 70% of majority of people, they have some kind of imposter syndrome. But in general, always telling them that it's actually a great thing. From time to time, you can feel anxiety, but still, I feel for myself, it's kind of a driver that can help you growing because you're not standing still at one place but you're always trying to learn more. And the imposter syndrome always telling you that it's not enough. And it depends on how you treat it. But if you can use this fuel, sometimes it could be toxic fuel, (laughs) but this type of fuel help you to grow and grow faster than others just because sometimes you can feel insecure, but also the great thing is that you're hungry to learn more, to learn different things. And in general, I feel that imposter syndrome is kind of... It's not bad and good, but if you know how to use it, you can benefit from it. What do you think? Yeah, a hundred percent. It's something that gets talked about a lot in my company Atlassian as well, because one of our founders, Mike Cannon-Brooks, he actually did a TED talk on imposter syndrome. You can imagine like this billionaire genius who has built up this massive global company. He still talks about how he has imposter syndrome. And he normalizes it and he makes us all know that it's okay. We all feel the same. And I think, like you said, the key is to just not let it get in your way. You know, you acknowledge that it's there. You acknowledge that you feel insecure, but you know that if you're feeling uncomfortable, it's because you're, you're growing, right? If you're not feeling that, then maybe you're in your comfort zone and and maybe not growing as much. So it kind of depends on what you're aspirations are at the time. But yeah, being a bit uncomfortable is always good for growth, definitely. For personal growth, I mean. 
Yeah, totally agree with that. Also, in the description, a lot of our listeners probably will notice that you have a title, not a product manager, but growth product manager. And the growth term itself comes up like not long time ago. So can you maybe tell our listeners who doesn't know that what is the difference between growth product manager and product manager? Yeah, it's interesting. I worked for a few years as what I kind of think of as traditional product manager, where you own everything to do with this product or set of features within a product and you're building features and building customer value. And maybe your metrics are around retention or CSAT or usage of different features. And it's all about the product. Whilst in growth, it's much more of a commercial mindset. So typically our goals are revenue-based. It's about how do we grow the number of customers using a product. In in my case, I work for a B2B. So how many businesses, how many people within each company are using the product? How many products are they using? Because we're a multi-product company. You know, how many products are they purchased? And so it's more around those kind of revenue metrics. And generally, we're not building new products on new customer value. We're thinking about the existing products that are there, and we're trying to connect more people to that value. It's about the discoverability and the awareness of these products, or maybe they're already using the products, but there are features within the products that they haven't discovered yet. And maybe those features are from the paid version and they're on the free version. And so there's different strategies. It depends on your goal at the time. But yeah, so that's what I do as a growth product manager. And my current role specifically in Atlassian is the what we call cross-flow. So it's how do we help more people cross-flow from one product to another? You know, if they're already using one product, how do we get them to discover their second or third or fourth product and get value from it? It's a very interesting space. It's awesome. Thanks for sharing. And also I assume that you work at B2B and then you need to collaborate not only with engineers or designers, but also probably with customer success teams, with uh, account executives, business developers, as it's B2B. And I'm curious how you collaborate with uh, different verticals and how you communicate the value or the goals of the things that you're tackling. Yeah, it's interesting. I do work with those teams, but probably less than what you'd see in other B2B companies, but not for the reason that maybe you're thinking. So it's in the product growth team, we think about how do we build product first flywheels to generate this growth? So it's less about how do we funnel more people to our sales team or our customer support team, but how do we enable customers to grow themselves without needing manual intervention from sales teams and and whatnot. So how do we create frictionless paths in product that they can take all the actions that they need? So simple things like, I think one of the things that Lassian was most well known for back in the early days, how it took off was, you know, people could sign up through the website. Even today, so many companies You can't even do that. You need to book a call with the salesperson, organize a demo. You can't even try the product without speaking to someone first. But Alassian was one of the most well-known companies that got rid of that first barrier. And then even in product today, like if you want to try another product, you don't need to speak to a customer service representative to do that. You can sign up for multiple products. You can discover them within your product. You can upgrade from free to paid within product. 
And so those are the kinds of things that the growth team tries to do. How do we make them easy? How do we give people enough information that they can make these decisions without having to speak to somebody? So I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying we don't probably have as much collaboration with those teams as Mm -hmm. other companies, but probably the one thing we do is we always let them know what we're doing. So if there's a new growth funnel or growth channel that we've built in product, the sales team needs to be aware of what that is so that if a customer does reach out to them, they're not caught off guard. They know, oh yes, you know, you, you saw this in product and that's how it works and they can help them as as best they can, help them with whatever they need. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. And you also mentioned that you run A-B tests, every product company running for A-B tests, but as you're already a big company, I'm sure that you have a lot of product teams and every team runs their own A-B test. How you are managing this amount of A-B tests and have you faced with the issue where someone's A-B test affected your A-B test or how does it work? It's a challenge. We've been doing this for years, but I would say, you know, there are still many things that we could do better about the way we do things, about the way we run experiments. And there's lots for us to learn still. We we have a centralized place where we log when we're going to run an experiment and, you know, we'll always check there and see, are there other experiments that might potentially clash or contaminate our experiments? But <laughs> we've definitely had times where we've run into problems where, you know, two experiments from different teams have run at the same time without knowing. And then it just becomes really messy from a post-analysis point of view to try and understand did my change actually influence the customer or was it something else? So it's not easy, but we use all the same tools. I'm sure many other companies doing A-B tests are feature flags. And yeah, we have a lot of analytics instrumented to try and be as crystal clear as we can with the data. There's a lot of talking to mm-hmm. other people, just reaching out and making sure that nothing's going to interfere with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, in your scale, probably it's even more complicated to talk with a lot of people because as I know, you're like in Australia and I know we have, and in Poland, we have an Atlassian office. And what if the other teams that can work on other AB test experiment works from Poland and then you need to find the time to discuss things? It's quite challenging. Uh, Yeah, especially like there are times when I've been on cross-product programs of work where we've had people from both East Coast and West Coast of the US and Australia and then like India as well. And it's literally like three different sides of the globe. So always someone needs to be having a meeting in the middle of the night in order for all three parties to meet up. It's got its challenges for sure. But, we, you know, we, we try and co-locate teams where possible to avoid this, but yeah. You can't avoid it in a global company with customers all across the globe as well. Yeah, it happens in life. Nothing goes as perfect as you're expecting. So you always need to be prepared for it, especially if you're working in such a company like you're working at right now. And yeah. one more question regarding the A-B test. Don't answer if it's sensitive information, but uh, what is the ratio between successful experiments and failed experiments? That's a, that's a spicy question. So... I don't have visibility across every experiment across other teams. I would say that, so the growth team at Atlassian's been around for a few years. I'd say we're not actually as that mature compared to other big name companies that are doing A-B tests. We've had a lot to learn, but because of that, I think 
there's still been a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of growth, things that we've just learned like, oh, that's a no brainer. We should just try that. And because of that, we probably have a slightly higher success rate than you might see in other places. You know, you hear about companies where, you know, they'll run hundreds of experiments and maybe 20% will be successful. I think we aren't at the point where we're experimenting things like, should this button be light blue or dark blue? You know, it's not to that level of experiment yet. It's at a different kind of scale. So yeah, I'd say more than 50% would be successful because of the low hanging fruit, I would say. We haven't moved on to as many risky things where there's a higher chance of failure yet. Yeah, but it's really valuable to hear that because I told you that we are running a startup, but also I am partner in a sort of development house, a software development agency. And um, sometimes clients come to us with experiments to run, I don't know, a few landing pages and just see the conversion. And then they get upset once we roll out one of the landing pages, the conversion rate drop for 10% or something like that. And But initially, in terms of complexity of the experiment in just three landing pages and uh, people already get upset. But when you're getting to the point when you need to run experiments, probably you need to accept the fact that a lot of experiments would fail because you are growing on failures only, I I believe. Yeah, that is very true. I would say even, I I don't like the word fail. We talk about, you know, it's either it had the result that you were expecting it sort of confirmed your assumptions or you've learned something new. It's helped make sure that you didn't build the wrong thing, right? It's funny, like whenever I've presented experiment results internally, it's always the ones that failed that people are most interested in. They're like, oh, like, what did you learn? Like, what was the assumption you had and how did you come to that? And, you know, what was the data that proved that wrong? Because that's where everyone learns something. I think that's the other most important thing about when you fail, is sharing those learnings as widely as possible, like, you know, within your company or, or with your customers that you're working with, because those are the gold nuggets for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting. Like in general, A-B tests, I think it's a big different study that you can just learn by itself because it sounds easy, especially when you're just Googling what is A-B test and then always comparing as a conversion rate of an add to cart button. But it's actually more than that if you go deeper to the A-B test. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's so many other things that you can test. Like it's not always just about conversion rates. We run experiments sometimes specifically for the purpose of learning, just understanding customer behavior, you know, I'm sure you've done this many times yourself as well, but, you know, testing content, like what messages resonate with people, how does that teach you about what problems they're having or what motivates them? And it goes so much deeper than just they click this button or not. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think like, if you would be interested in talking more about product management, I think we can even uh, talk on the next call and go deeper to a certain topic if you would like to share with our listeners. But I also save some time just also to talk a little bit more about your teaching and mentoring experience. And can you tell us how you get there and what's actually motivated you to go and teach others to be a product manager? Yeah, I think I've always had a passion for teaching people. Uh, I think it's something that just brings me a deep sense of satisfaction when I can share some information and I can see that person 
get excited or inspired by it. So like actually it was well before I started product management. I My first startup, my first business was I started a little business traveling around teaching fashion illustration to high school students because I just loved sharing knowledge. And yeah, when I moved to product, I just found that there were so many people out there trying to do the same thing that I'd just done. They were trying to break into product for the first time. And whether they were just coming straight from you know college, university, or coming from a different background. And I thought, huh, like I can help these people. That's easy. Like I've, I've done this. There's so many things that I could share. And like I was saying before, like you get a lot from giving back as well. Every time I connect with someone and share some knowledge, I always learn something interesting in return or I meet an interesting person. I build a friendship or a connection that I didn't have before. And yeah, that's that's really valuable to me as well. The only thing I want to mention, actually just based on our 40 minutes call and talking about product management, about yourself, and the fact is that you came to product management from fashion industry. I think like, I actually, I haven't participated in this product school courses, but I actually feel that uh, you are a great teacher and <laughs> you actually like a right person to make other people to become a product manager, to be honest. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's that's very kind of you to say. I I just, yeah, I like speaking to people. I always meet interesting people like yourself. I feel very privileged that you reached out to me. Actually, it's more like privilege to us just because, you know, when you're studying podcasts and you're reaching out to people and 60% of people like ghosting myself or <laughs> they're just scheduling saying that, Okay, once you will launch your first episode, let me know, and then I will consider to join us. But with you, I just wrote you, and you just responded immediately, and I am pretty happy that we have someone like you in our podcast. And again, thank you for joining. And anyway, seems like we are running out of time. I still have like a lot of questions, but uh, maybe as we touch base the part with uh, teaching and mentoring, maybe my closing question would be around advice for newcomers. So what advice you would give to the person who are only starting their career in product management? I think the same advice that was given to me that I mentioned kind of right at the beginning of going out and getting involved in the community, whether it's a local meetup group in your city, wherever in the world you live, meeting other product managers, because even if you are already working in a tech company or as an early career product manager, product is different at every company, in every team of every company that you'll work in. Every place I've worked in, the definition of what a product manager is is slightly different. What they do in their day-to-day roles, how they think about their product, you know, every industry, B2B, B2C. And so I think the more people that you can meet and speak to, it'll just broaden your mind and about, you know, what does it actually mean to be a product manager? And yeah, you'll learn a lot just by speaking to other people and then taking those learnings back and actively doing something with them. You know, it's one thing to learn something, but you have to put that into practice and that's how you grow your skill set and start to find those boundaries. Like a lot of people say, how do I get to the next level in my career? Well, you have to be going out there and always finding new skills and putting them into practice. And that's how you kind of grow your sphere of expertise and experience and knowledge and influence as well. Awesome. So just to sum up, 
don't afraid to go outside of your comfort zone go network and talk with a lot of people don't afraid to join the company even if you don't have industry background and maybe i would say in general don't afraid of challenges and if you feel that you are like it's a quite challenging environment right now then probably it's the right place where you're at right now yeah definitely awesome then thank you very much for joining our podcast today and i hope to see you and to hear you even in our next episode Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Product Leaders Podcast is brought to you by FireArt. I was your host, Tolik. To find out more about FireArt and how we aim to build a brand that will contribute to the world with useful products that empower people and make their lives easier, visit fireart.studio. Search for Product Leaders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at FireArt, thanks for listening.